0: So the verses that we're going to be covering today is out of the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 and the title of my sermon is uh, God Breaks Barriers. So something that's important to note about these verses that we'll be covering today is it handles a topic that many of us present day Christians take for granted. Nearly every person in this room today is ethnically what the Bible would refer to as a Gentile or a non-Jewish person. And in the Old Testament, the Gentile nations, being outside of God's covenant with Israel and left to their own devices, were known for their idolatry and wickedness. They had no way of reconciliation with God and were without hope in the world. However, our verses today show us that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, the Gentiles can now be made right with God and welcome into his family. So if you'll please stand with me as we read God's word. by the Spirit, Thus reads God's word, you may be seated. So we're obviously jumping into the, into the middle section of a book, um, so I think it would be helpful to give a brief review of what was covered in the first chapter and a half of the book of Ephesians. So starting in the first chapter, Paul explains to the Gentile Ephesians that God had chosen to save them and to adopt them as his own children. And saving them was according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace." And God had lavished his love upon them by sending his one begotten son to shed his blood and die for their sins. Jesus' resurrection from the dead displayed the power of God or that God has over sin and death and demonstrates that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And you'll have that title for all time. Now, once we get into chapter 2, the first 10 verses, God further demonstrates his power by bringing spiritually dead people to life. The Ephesians had been dead in their trespasses and sins, followers of Satan, and by nature were children of God's wrath. Nevertheless, God in his great love and mercy brought them to spiritual life in Jesus Christ. And it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that anybody can be saved. And there is no way for a person to save their self. It is completely a work of God. And once God has brought someone to new life, they begin walking in the good works that God has prepared for them to do. So with all that context in mind, we'll get jumping into our verses for today. So again, verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So as always, we need to evaluate why uh, the Apostle Paul is using the word therefore. It means something, right? So as we see earlier in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul tells the Gentile believers, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we see here that we were all at one time dead in trespasses and sins, and completely cut off from God. And in fact, it took a supernatural work of God just to save us and bring us to salvation. And Paul here is reminding the Gentile Ephesians that they too were once cut off from God. In fact, these Gentile Ephesian Christians were being referred to as the uncircumcision by certain Jewish Christians or the circumcision. And they were regarded as being unclean and cut off from God because they were uncircumcised Gentiles. Now, circumcision in the Old Testament had been an outward sign of belonging to God's people, the the Jews. However, circumcision is no longer necessary because Christ has died for both Jew and Gentile alike and has welcomed all into the family of God. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere in the book of Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. He tells us this, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man but from God. So what these verses show us is that true circumcision is that of the heart, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit and cleansed of our sin, and it's not by the flesh. Now moving into verse 12, it says this. It says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So in the Old Testament, it was Israel that was chosen to be God's people, and the outside nations were not a part of God's people and naturally turned and worshipped false idols and engaged in rampant, deviant behavior. And because every human will naturally worship something, either their true creator or an idol, the Gentiles throughout history engaged in egregious acts of idol worship. So in the Old Testament, we see the Gentile nations worshipping false gods such as Baal, Moloch, and Dagon. And the rituals associated with these gods consisted of acts such as self-mutilation, cult prostitution, child sacrifice, and many other despicable practices. So what this shows us is that when man is left to his own devices, when he's dead in sin, he will manufacture gods to worship that expose the true wickedness of his heart. Now on the other hand, let's listen to some of the advantages that Paul points out that ethnic Israelites had over the rest of the world. Again, from in the Old Testament times, in Romans chapter 9, Verses 4 through 5, it says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we see here that the Israelites had literally every advantage over the Gentiles. So again, the Gentiles, outside of Christ, had absolutely no hope. They were excluded from Isra- because they were excluded from Israel, and they remained dead in their trespasses and sins and had God's wrath abiding on them prior to Christ. They had no way to be reconciled to God because God had not chosen to reveal himself in the special way that he had previously revealed himself to Israel exclusively. So we're getting into verse 13 now, and it says But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the Gentiles' previous exclusion that we just talked about was completely changed by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. While they were formerly outsiders and excluded from the blessings of God, they were now adopted as children into God's family by being reconciled to God through Christ. So the things that the Gentiles were previously excluded from in verse 12, being separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, and strangers of the covenants of promise, through Christ they now have full participation. So when we look back to verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We talked about this a moment ago. We were all once cut off from God and completely spiritually dead. But when we get to verses 4 through 5, we get the good news when it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we see again that it's because of God's act of saving us through the redemptive work Of his son Jesus Christ, that we Gentiles are no longer far off, but have been brought near and have been reconciled to God through Jesus' blood. Now, moving into verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The Reformation Study Bible has a footnote on this verse, and it says that the dividing wall of hostility refers to the courts of the temple in Jerusalem. A wall separated Gentiles and Jews, and signs were posted, excluding Gentiles from the inner courts, where sacrifices for sin were performed. Paul interprets it as emblematic of the law's function of keeping Israel separate from the surrounding pagan peoples. So again, prior to Christ, there was a great wall or barrier that separated the Jew from the Gentile that could not be overcome. However, because Christ has torn down this wall, there can now be peace between the two people. And this is why Paul is able to say in Galatians 3:28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." And a final note on this verse is that we should also compare this to Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And right after Jesus dies on the cross, the scripture tells us, it says, "And behold, the curtain of the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So the purpose of the curtain tearing was to show that because of what Jesus had done on the cross, man was no longer separated from God. And if God can destroy the barrier that separated man or him from mankind, then he can also destroy the barriers that separate one man from the other. Now, moving into verse 15, it says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So what this verse points to is the fact that Christ has abolished the ceremonial law that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. These would include laws regarding circumcision, animal sacrifice, holidays, ceremonial washings, so on and so forth. Now, the ceremonial laws were unique to the nation of Israel and were a type and shadow of Christ or the Messiah to come. And therefore, ultimately, they found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Paul alludes to this in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The author of Hebrews further tells us in chapter 10, verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, it follows that animal sacrifices were a symbol of the coming Messiah, who was our ultimate and perfect sacrifice, who, as Hebrews 10:12 tells us, was offered for all time as a single sacrifice for sins. So therefore, the ceremonial laws that had previously separated the Jews and the Gentiles should no longer be a dividing wall between them. Now, having said all that, we must recognize that there is a distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law. The moral law consists of laws like the Ten Commandments. Therefore, when God tells us not to murder, commit adultery, or to covet, and so on, these are all moral laws. And because humanity bears God's image, the moral law is written on our hearts and is therefore naturally revealed to us. While the ceremonial law was particularly revealed to the Jews. And again, Romans 2.14-16 through 16 illustrates this point. adultery, and so on, are all very evil practices, and these laws, while revealed to us through God's word, are also written on our hearts, being his image-bearers, and are recognized nearly universally, and so therefore, we can conclude that the moral law would not be a part of the abolished law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, verse 16 says, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So not only are the Jew and the Gentile now reconciled by the tearing down of the dividing wall of hostility and by the abolition of the ceremonial law, but most importantly, we are reconciled through the cross as a single body of believers to God. The Bible gives us an illustration of Jesus being the vine and all believers being his branches. It further states that ethnic Jews are the natural branches and that Gentiles are the branches that are ungrafted in or the unnatural branches. So, being members of the same vine, even though one is a natural branch, being the believing Jews, and others are the unnatural branches, believing Gentiles, we are nevertheless now one, and we can only be joined together by the vine, which is Jesus Christ, or the true Israel. So, being now members of the same church, branches of the same vine, and all adopted children of God, there can no longer be any hostility between us. Now, in verse 17, It says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. So as we already covered in verse 13, this is a very similar verse. And it's actually a citation of Isaiah 57, 19, where the prophet says, Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord. The far in this context are the Gentiles, and the near are the Jews. So again, we're seeing Paul hammering at home. Both Jew and Gentile receive the same gospel, and it is Jesus alone who gives us both peace and rest. Now, verse 18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So prior to our reconciliation to God, we had absolutely no access to him. Again, as it said earlier in chapter 2, God's wrath actually remained on us until the moment that we were saved. However, because of Jesus, we now have access to the Father in the same way that a child has access to their father. And not only do we have access, but we actually have access to approach the throne of God Confidently, And we see this in Hebrews 4.16, where it tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So on this verse, um, uh, uh, regarding our access in one spirit, John Calvin writes, he says, The Spirit leads and guides us to Christ, and by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For hence arises the boldness of approach. Jews had various means of drawing near to God. Now all have but one way, to be led by the Spirit of God. So we see that it is through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit we are led to faith in Jesus Christ. And by being led to faith in Christ, we are in turn reconciled and given access to the Father. Now, we're going to bunch the last couple of verses, or several verses together, verses 19 through 22. And it says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So again, the Gentiles are no longer strangers to God as they had been prior to Jesus Christ. In fact, now they are as much citizens and members of God's house as the believing Jews were. God's temple or house was no longer the temple in Jerusalem that gave special access to the Jews over the Gentiles, but it is now the church which is made up of both Jew and Gentile alike. So we may ask ourselves in the Old Testament, if there was one physical temple, how can the church, which is made up of many different buildings and many different denominations, be the new temple of God? Well, we see that the temple or house of God is now, in fact, a spiritual one. And the foundation of this temple are the teachings of the prophets. And the apostles, so in the time of Jesus, the Old Testament had already been well established, and we know this because Jesus cites from the Old Testament extensively in the Gospels. Therefore, at the time of Christ, the teachings of the prophets again had already been well established. Further, we see that when Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he gave the apostles this charge. In Matthew twenty-eight um, through twenty-eight eighteen through twenty, it says this: And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth." has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always to the end of the age so we see in these verses that jesus by his authority gave the apostles a mandate to proclaim the gospel to all the nations and this means the apostles were divinely inspired by the holy spirit to be christ's ambassadors on earth and to to start the spread of the gospel all over the world. And we know that the vast majority of the New Testament was written by an apostle of Christ as well. And for any that were not written by an apostle, the text would either need to be approved or would need to be approved by an apostle in order to be included in the canon of scripture. So it was the apostles who brought the gospel to the Gentiles, most notably Paul and Peter. And therefore, this is why the apostles are noted as being the foundation of God's temple, the church, because we would actually have no knowledge of Christ if it wasn't for their faithful witness and them spreading the gospel to the nations. And we also see in these verses that Christ is the cornerstone of God's temple, again, being the church. Without Jesus, the cornerstone and most essential part of the temple, the whole building would collapse. And without Jesus, that, without Jesus there would actually be no gospel, for it was his perfect life, his death on the cross in our place, and his subsequent resurrection and ascension that save us. Therefore, without Jesus, there would be no church, and the teaching of the apostles would be completely in vain. So we see here that with the cornerstone set and the foundation laid, God's temple is now continually being built up. So what, what does this mean? So this means that as the gospel continues to go out and new Christians are added to God's church, God's temple continues to grow. All of us who truly believe in Jesus are officially considered spiritual stones in His temple. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5 through five says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 22, Paul states that you also are being built together. So when he says you, he's referring specifically to the Gentile Ephesians. So again, we're seeing that it is not only the Jews that are included in God's temple, but all those who profess a faith in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike. Now, in Paul's statement, there is also an individual sense in which we are God's temple. While Paul has made it abundantly clear that we are corporately a part of God's temple, the Bible is also clear that our bodies individually um, are temples of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians uh, 3.16, Paul asks, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. Therefore, both individually and corporately as the church, we are God's temple. And God will continue to build his temple, both Jew and Gentile alike, until our Lord Jesus Christ returns to be with us forever. So, obviously, today we've covered a ton of verses, so I think it would be helpful just to go through a quick summary and a point of application. So, in summary, Paul's message in this section is that the Ephesians, and really all Gentiles in general, and this includes most of us in this room today, were once cut off from God. However, because of Jesus Christ, the barrier between us and God has now been broken down. There is now no distinction between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. We are one body and are all members of God's family. The church continues to grow and expand to the nations through the proclamation of the gospel. Again, Jesus is our cornerstone. And the teachings of the prophets and the apostles, which um, summed up together as the Bible or our foundation. As more people accept the gospel, God's spiritual temple keeps growing, awaiting its final completion at Jesus' return. Now, how can we apply these verses to our life? Well, again, as I mentioned, most of us are Gentiles today, or in this room today, right? So now that we Gentile believers have been brought near to God, and we, since we had previously been far away, we cannot be like those of the circumcision party or the insiders who had regarded those of the uncircumcision or the outsider Gentiles as being outside of God's reach. When we look around at our sinful world and see others rebelling against God, we must remind ourselves that God can save them from spiritual death just as he has saved us from spiritual death. God is always building his church, and therefore I would like to encourage everyone in here today to continue praying for and ministering to those that God has placed in your life who you would regard as far away from him. Continue to share the gospel with them, invite them to church, and pray for them. As we've seen today, no one is outside of God's reach. And God can give them new life in Christ just as he has given me and you new life in Christ who were once far away.